You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. Without uh, any further ado, Ian, we're going to get Ian Gould to come up and share the word this morning. Yeah, we'll give Ian a round of applause as well. Thank you. Where are these two young women magnificent this morning? What beautiful voices. If you've got your Bibles or apps on your phone, which most people seem to have nowadays, um, open up John chapter 1. Today I'm going to start looking at John's Gospel. And we've been reading through John's Gospel for several months or so. I'm not sure how long it's been, quite a while, at the start of the church meetings. And it's actually one of my favourite parts of the service, uh, to hear the word of God just read out, the way it was delivered, obviously in a different language, but the way it was delivered, pure, unadulterated words of the Holy Spirit delivered um, without comments and interpretation is a beautiful thing, actually. I think uh, it's a very precious thing. Having said that, I'm about to launch into a series in the Gospel of John where I'll be reading it and interpreting it. So hopefully I'll be interpreting it as the Holy Spirit would like me to. Um, But Tony has actually asked me to uh, preach a little bit more often than I have in the past. I've been a bit slack in that regard, I must admit. And so I was thinking about what would I preach if I'm going to do it more regularly. And I felt led to preach on John's Gospel. One commentator says, and I agree with him, our growth as Christians is inextricably bound up with the size of our vision of Christ. Once we get away from a one-dimensional or overly narrow picture of Christ, once we see the fullness and glory of Christ in the Scriptures, our lives will be enlarged. I believe most of us need a bigger vision of Christ. I've said in the past, and I believe that's true, that our vision of God is too small. John's Gospel will expand our vision of God. It will show us the magnificence of Christ, the greatness of his love. It will show us the matchless beauty of his grace. These are things that can be read about and even understood to some extent by anybody, believer or unbeliever, uh, but only can be experienced by those whose hearts have been transformed by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. The Gospel of John is unique among the four Gospels. All four of them deal with the life, the ministry, the death and the resurrection of Christ. But John is written in a very different style to the other three. Matthew, Mark and Luke tell a lot of the same stories. They spend a lot of time on Jesus' many miracles and his many parables. And they show his interaction with the the general population. In contrast, John only has a handful of miracles, which is interesting because John says at the end of his gospel, these things are written that you may believe and that you would believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And yet he only has half a dozen or something miracles in there. But most of John, or a large proportion of John, actually records private conversations that John had with his 12 hand-picked disciples. John is much more intimate in tone and in the subject matter than the other three Gospels. I'll talk some more about those differences in future messages, but for now, 
I just want you to take notice as we work through John's Gospel, and I'd encourage you to be reading it as well in between so um, you'll know what I'll be talking about next time. Um, John is different to the others. Not that John is better or worse, it's just different. The way he writes, the purpose he writes, uh, is explicitly stated that you would believe. But he writes it in a different style, a different tone, and uh, a different subject matter for much of it. But they are all four Gospels, of course, are written and inspired by the Holy Spirit and, and written for our benefit, for our understanding, and building us up in the knowledge and love of the Lord and in our faith. So before we get to John, though, let's go back to the beginning, to Genesis chapter 1. We can have that up on the screen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. The Bible starts with creation, with the beginnings of the universe. The Bible is explicit that God created. He created the universe out of nothing. It's very clear in the Bible that God created the universe out of nothing. The Bible has no place for the idea that the universe has always existed or that the universe somehow created itself. Funnily enough, though, the Bible's not that far removed from Big Bang Theory, or probably, I should say more correctly, Big Bang Theory's not that far removed from the Bible. The Big Bang Theory says, in essence, that in the beginning there was nothing and it exploded. And in a sense, that's correct. In the beginning there was nothing. There was no matter. There were no atoms, no molecules, no gases, no liquids, no solids. There was nothing. Where it falls down, of course, is in the assumption that nothingness could spontaneously explode and create somethingness. It assumes that something that does not yet exist has the ability within its non-existent self to create itself. You can imagine this being part of a comedian's routine at the comedy festival. The comedian talks about the beginnings of the universe and ends with a punchline, in the beginning there was nothing and it exploded. Can you imagine the audience staggering to their feet Tears of laughter rolling down their face, giving him standing, a standing ovation because it's the funniest routine they've ever heard. If it weren't for the fact that so many modern scientists say that's exactly what happened, we'd be rolling on the floor with laughter as well. We'd laugh at the absurdity of it. Unfortunately, that's the pinnacle of secular science because the alternative is, in the beginning, God created we couldn't have that, could we? The Bible, in contrast, tells us how this nothingness became something. It was created ex nihilo, the Latin term, out of nothing, by an act of God. In fact, it was spoken into being. God didn't even have to raise a sweat to do it. He spoke and it was created. Over and over again, in each new day of creation, God speaks and out of nothing, more creation happens. Let there be light, let there be waters, let there be land, let there be plant life, let there be sun and moon and stars, let there be animals and birds and fish, 
And finally, to cap off the wonderful creation, God said, let us make man in our image. So we come to the Gospel of John now. We find John starting off in a similar way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Matthew, Mark and Luke all take us back to the the beginnings of Jesus' earthly life. They talk about his birth, his conception, his birth. There's one small mention of his youth. Um, They talk entirely about his, uh, his human life, not denying that he was God, but about his human life. And they establish it by starting with genealogies. He was the son of, he was the son of, who was the son of, and so on, back to Adam or Abraham or whoever it may be in that genealogy. John starts from a very different place. John's gospel takes us back to the beginning of creation and before. He takes us back into the immeasurable eternity before creation. He tells us not only about creation, but about the God who was behind creation the God who created it all. And John makes no bones about it. The God who created it all is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's read the first 14 verses of John, which is often called the prologue before we get into the nitty-gritty of it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So in the beginning, verse 1, was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. That simple sentence is one of the most compact and most profound theological statements in the whole Bible. There's three important things here wonder if you've noticed them. John establishes in the very first verse three important things. The existence of the word before creation, the existence of the word with God but separate to God, and the existence of the word as God in his own right. John tells us from the very first sentence that the word, the logos is the term in Greek for word, the creator of all things is God. He himself is not a created being. 
Then in verse 14, John explains who that word is, who the Logos is. It's none other than Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. So how does John tell us these things? In the beginning was the word. When creation commenced, when time began, the word, the Logos, was already there. He didn't come into being at that point, for he already was the word. The actual words that are used in scripture are really important. They're chosen very carefully by the authors and by the Holy Spirit who inspired the authors to make their point. They didn't just pluck words out of the air just for the sake of writing something down. They chose them because they had meaning and they had important meanings. We should be just as careful to make sure that we read them correctly. Even something as basic as the tenses of the verbs are important because they tell us a great deal about what the author is saying. Do you remember your high school grammar? The verb tenses, past, present, don't they? Don't teach high school grammar, what a shame. Three verb tenses, past, present and future. I was, I am, I will be. In the beginning was the word. That three little word was, past tense, is an important word. That simple word tells us as economically as possible that the word already existed, that the word already was. In fact, the original Greek, in the original Greek, the tense of the verb means more than just existed in the past, as if he didn't exist, he existed for a while and he may someday cease to exist. Biblical Greek has a verb tense called imperfect and the imperfect tense describes a continuous reality. In the case of the Logos, that means continuous existence before the beginning of everything. That's why when we get to John chapter 8, we will hear Jesus say, before Abraham was, I am. There was never a time when he wasn't, and incidentally, there'll never be a time when he isn't. So we have an example, only a few words into John's Gospel, of how the Gospel contains vast and deep theological ideas in very compact terms. It makes the Gospel really easy to read, but not necessarily easy to comprehend. Someone has said that John's Gospel is easy enough for a child to read, but deeper than the wisest minds can understand. And in one word of one syllable, we have profound depth. Not only was the word already there at the start of all time and creation, but he was the first cause of all things. In the beginning implies more than just his relationship to time, but also his relationship to creation itself. We'll look at that that a little bit more when we get to verse 3. So John has established the pre-existence of the word in the very first phrase of his gospel. It's only five words of one or two syllables in the original Greek and it's only six words in our English translation. So simple but so profound. The word was with God. John tells us about his coexistence. The word coexisted with God but is distinguished from God. John's making a separation between the word and God. Somehow they are not the same person although they are clearly both there in the beginning. And the word was God, John goes on to say. Now he complicates matters. Just when we start thinking that maybe the word was there, but as a sort of a a lesser deity, a demigod or something like that, John says that the word was God. 
Many of John's Greek readers would have had little problem with the word existing with God, but that isn't, that isn't much different to how they understood their own religion at the time, that there was a head honcho God who had lots of um, sub-gods underneath him, under his authority. So maybe the word is one of those lesser gods, but John shatters that idea with a statement, and the word was God. They could not have anticipated that when they heard this. In fact, the Greek is actually constructed in such a way, apparently, to indicate that the word shares the nature and the essence of God, but is not identical with God. One paraphrase puts it fairly accurately, I think, what God was, the word was. So what we have in the very first verse then is a being who has no beginning. He is eternal. A being who is separate from God. He has his own identity. But a being who is fully divine. He is in no way inferior to God himself. So while, God, while John hasn't actually laid out a doctrine of the Trinity here, he clearly seems to be suggesting a binity of God, if you like. That in some fashion, that we haven't worked out at this point, God consists of two separate but equal persons and two distinguishable persons. That is the Word, who we soon learn is none other than Jesus Christ himself, and God, who is later revealed as the Father. The deity of the Holy Spirit will be established further on in John's Gospel, adding a third person to the Godhead. But this doesn't mean that there are three gods, there is only one God existing in three persons. This is important. It's the key to the whole of John's Gospel. Everything Jesus says, every claim he makes about himself, everything he does are the words and actions of God. If it's not true, the whole book of John is blasphemous. The Christian doctrine of the Trinity is something other religions such as Judaism and Islam stumble over. Many Christians believe that Allah, the God of the Muslims, is the same as the God of the Bible. But anyone who thinks that is wrong. He is a very different God to the God of the Bible. They have had the source in the original, but their understanding of God is, is very different to what the Bible teaches. Any religion or philosophy that denies that Jesus Christ is God is wrong. The Trinity is a teaching that some of the Christian cults and pseudo-Christian religions also can't accept. The most well-known of those, of course, are the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons, but there's plenty of others. There's uh, Christadelphians, Unitarians, Oneness Pentecostals, lots of other cults and uh, religions that uh, can't accept that. But the JWs and the Mormons are the ones that are most likely to knock on your front door um, and try and convert you. So let me state as clearly and emphatically as I can that these groups are not Christian. No matter how moral and how nice they might sound, they are not Christian. Don't be deceived. What they teach is not biblical. Rather, and this is a big statement, but I believe it's true, it is demonic. The God they worship is not the God revealed in the Bible, but the God of their founders imagining. There's plenty of wrong teachings in amongst these groups. It's not my purpose to go into all the details of it there at the moment. Um, but it's my conviction that rejection of the Trinity is fundamental and insurmountable error. 
one so important to the foundations of Christian faith that if you reject the Trinity, you are not actually a Christian. I don't mean that you need to understand the Trinity because truly it's something none of us can properly get our head around. But you need to recognise that Scripture clearly reveals God is a Trinity. And we have to understand as best we can within the limits of our finite minds and accept it. Both Jesus and the Holy Spirit are fully and completely God, no less than the Father is. And yet at the same time, they are separate and distinguishable from the Father. I have a document I prepared many years ago that has a representative sample of scriptures to show what the Bible really does teach us about the Trinity. Anyone who wants to study it in more depth, come and see me afterwards. I'm happy to email it to you. Uh, It's a list of scriptures that show Father, Son and Holy Spirit all attributed with the characteristics, nature, um, actions of God such as omniscience and eternality and creation and all three, claims that all three raised Christ from the dead. Numbers of scriptures that uh, that show the, the reality, the truth of the Trinity. So I said recently, some of you may recall, that our understanding of God must be founded on Scripture, not on whatever the preacher says or on on traditions or on any particular teaching of any group. This is particularly important for the doctrine of the Trinity because it's so hard to comprehend. So that raises a question though. John was a faithful monotheistic Jew and yet here he is writing stuff that implies that there is more than one God in some sense. So how did a monotheistic Jew come to be writing about a Trinitarian God? The Jews of his day and the Jews of this day are absolutely committed to the mono-nature of God. And John records the life and ministry of Jesus beginning with statements about Jesus being separate to God but equal to God. And in fact, claiming that Jesus is God and fully God and he continues those claims all the way through his gospel. So if this teaching about a plurality of persons in God is hard for us to understand today, how radical would it have been for first century Jews? And how radical would it have been for John himself? They were radically and fiercely monotheistic, as I said. And they believed that there is only one God and to suggest otherwise was considered blasphemous and worthy of death by stoning. The word monotheist comes from two Greek words, mono, which means one, and theos, meaning God. The opposite of monotheist is polytheist, poly, which means many, and theos, which means God. The book of Deuteronomy, if uh, we can have this, this passage up, the book of Deuteronomy is foundational to the Jewish belief in only one God. In Deuteronomy 6.4 in particular, it's one of the most important verses in the old Jewish Bible. Uh, it starts the, in Hebrew, I may have the pronunciation wrong, but Shema Yisrael, Eloheinu Adonai Echad, which means, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. 
You shall bind them as a sign on your hands, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Shema Yisrael. The Jews call it the Shema. That's the first two words in the text. Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. This verse is fundamental for an Orthodox Jew. It's absolutely clear that God is mono, God is one. When you read the history of the Jews in the Old Testament, you see time and time again how they suffer the punishment of God for slipping into idolatry, for worshipping other gods beside God or in addition to God. And the punishments that God inflicted on them for their idolatry were brutal. They were attacked, they were captured, they were ruled over by other nations and they were slaughtered. And most of these other nations were more wicked and ungodly than the Jews were. But God used them as instruments to discipline his own chosen people. They eventually learned their lesson. In the captivity in Babylon, 500 roughly years before Christ, they set themselves to worship one God and one God only. And to this day, two and a half thousand years later, they haven't deviated from it. They are fiercely protective of the mono nature of God. And they would willingly die and have willingly died through the centuries to protect that nature. They were so fiercely protective of it in Jesus' day that they crucified him for blasphemy, for he claimed to be God. So it's hard to comprehend how a monotheistic Jew like John could suggest that Jesus Christ is God unless he actually is God. Some of the cults will argue that you can't find the word Trinity in the Bible and they're correct, it's not there. But that doesn't mean the concept isn't there. And the word Trinity is a word that was chosen to explain or put a term to this concept. We'll see as we work through this gospel, there are many, many claims to the deity of Jesus Christ, most of them from his own lips. In fact, that was the reason why they killed him, for he was making himself equal with God, it says in John 5. So we'll dig into that as more depth as we go through, but there's evidence upon evidence of the truth of his deity in John's gospel. At this point, you might ask, why didn't John just write, in the beginning was Jesus? And Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. Why call him the Word? Why call him the Logos? John, interestingly, makes no attempt to explain the term to us, which is a clue that he expected his hearers to understand it. In fact, the term was familiar to both Jews and Greeks in the day. It was a term loaded with meaning for both races of people. The sacred Jewish scriptures are full of the phrase the word of God and the word of the Lord. Throughout the Old Testament there are appearances of the angel of the Lord. It's an interesting study. I'd encourage you to do it sometime on your own and see what it says about the angel of the Lord. In almost every instance it seems to be an appearance of Jesus Christ before his incarnation. Theological term for that is a theophany, if anyone cares to know, an appearance of God before the coming of Christ in human appearance of God in human form before the coming of Christ. Jacob, for example, you recall, wrestled with God and at the end of it said, I have seen God face to face. By the time of Christ, the word of the Lord had become a common way of describing the whole the visible manifestations of God. 
It helped the Jewish teachers to explain the scriptures, showing how God revealed himself visibly to certain people throughout their history, how God made himself known to them. Throughout the Old Testament, you read phrases like the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah or the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. The Jews came to understand that the word of God is God revealing himself to them, revealing his nature, his power, his person, his wisdom. So the word is God's revelation of himself and of his active power and his expression of himself. John chose this term to help the Jews and to help us to understand that Jesus makes God known. John later tells us that Jesus, who is at the Father's side, has made God God known. Paul tells us also that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And Jesus himself tells us, he who has seen me has seen the Father. For the Greeks, this term also had meaning. They understood the logos, the word, to be a creative but an impersonal force. The Logos was the most powerful force in the universe, in their understanding. It's a bit like the Star Wars, may the force be with you. Not a person, not a rational mind, but an impersonal and powerful force. Not entirely unlike Big Bang Theory and Evolutionary Theory and modern spirituality's Gaia and Mother Nature ideas, a force that creates but is impersonal, in no way knowable or relatable. So when John used the term, the word, he knew it was something Jews and Greeks could both identify with. But John wanted the Greeks to understand that this logos, this word, is not an impersonal force. This word is actually a person. It is God himself, personal and accessible. He has a mind, he has a will and he has emotions. You recall that when Paul was in Athens, he saw an altar erected to the unknown God. Paul used this as an opportunity then to make known to the Greeks who this unknown God really is, the Word, Jesus Christ. Likewise, John wanted his Jewish brethren also to know that this revelation of the living God is none other than Jesus Christ, God himself in human flesh. The Jews could know nothing of God if he didn't choose to reveal himself, and neither could we. He spoke first in creation, Then he spoke through Moses and the prophets. He spoke in the Jewish scriptures. Now finally he has spoken in person, in the God-man, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the fullest revelation of God that we will ever have or that we will ever need until we see him face to face in the eternal future. Let's move on. John verse 1, 2. He was in the beginning with God. John uses another tiny little Greek word here. They used it back in verse 1. Pros, which is translated with. In the beginning, he was in the beginning, pros God. He was in the beginning with God. Pros implies more than just proximity, but also implies an intimate personal relationship. So there's a closeness an intimacy in the, in the Godhead, in the Trinity. There is no division, but there is complete unity. Many people have the wrong impression of God. They, they think of God as being an angry father looking only to inflict punishment and suffering on people. Then they think of Jesus as being the loving son, calming God down so that he doesn't hurt anyone. 
as if God is some temperamental lunatic who can't control his emotions. Blasphemous. In fact, my daughter just sent me a, yesterday sent me a quote that uh, she says, this is some, some people we know are posting this sort of stuff on Facebook and it was along those lines that Jesus was such a lovely, nice person, he wouldn't harm a fly, completely missing the idea that Jesus represents the God of the Old Testament. What God was in the Old Testament is Jesus. And they look at that and they say, God was like that, he was horrible, Jesus is nice and lovely, he wouldn't hurt anyone. We'll um, have a challenge to that before I finish actually. There is no angry father loving son division in the Bible. The word Jesus Christ is the exact representation of God. Hebrews 1.3 tells us what you see in Jesus Christ is exactly what God is like. Verse 3, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Bit of a clumsy statement but not only is John emphatic the word is eternally God, he reinforces his statements by declaring that everything was made by him. He does it by a positive statement, all things were made through him, and he does it by a negative statement. Without him was not anything made that was made. Could John have made it more clear that nothing existed without Jesus Christ or before Jesus Christ? John wants to make sure you get the message loud and clear. Jesus Christ, the Word, is God himself. What do you think John might have made of the passage in Isaiah 45? I don't have it up there, but God is speaking, the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and he says, I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and, in, and made it, he established it, he did not create it empty, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. This is precisely what John has been telling us in verse 3. God created the heavens and the earth and that creator God is none other than Jesus Christ, the Word. John's not the only New Testament writer to come to this conclusion. Paul tells us the same things in, in Colossians 1, affirming John's claim that Jesus is God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. For he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The writer to the Hebrews tells us, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made out of things which are visible. When you're outside today and see the sun shining, or look up at the stars tonight, think of what the psalmist said in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hand. Apparently there are ten octillion stars in the universe. Ten octillion is one with 27 zeros behind it. And you know the word created every single one of them. 
and he named every single one of them. And when he said, I want you to be there and you to be there, every single one of them obeyed him and went to the exact place in the universe where he told it to go. Not only did he create every star out of nothing, he created every atom, every electron, every neutron, every proton out of nothing that makes up those phenomenally enormous, incomprehensibly huge stars. That's the mind-bendingly incomprehensible power of this word, this God we worship. Everything you can see in the sky above and everything that is beyond your vision was created by the word, by none other than Jesus Christ. He is infinitely powerful. He is infinitely magnificent. And he is worthy of our worship. In fact, if every one of the seven billion people who live on earth at the moment fell down on their faces to worship Jesus Christ, if every one of the billions who have lived fell on their face today to worship Jesus Christ and the billions who will live, he would still not receive the worship he deserves. For he is infinitely worthy of worship. As we see when we get to verse 14, this same supreme creator God, infinitely worthy of worship, who has always existed in eternity, became flesh. Not only did he become flesh, but he lived a sinless life. He died an unjust death. He rose again from the dead and he did it for a purpose, to bear the penalty that you and I justly deserve for our sin. No other religion, no other system of belief can make a claim like that. The eternal, infinitely powerful God became a man to live and die for you. What will be your response to him? There are lots of different denominations that come under the Christian umbrella. There are lots of cults that claim to be the only true Christian church. There are plenty of other religions that have passionate followers. If you want to find out if they're Christian, I think there's a simple test. What do they say about Jesus Christ? Is he fully God, eternal, powerful, wise, holy, unchanging? Is he equal with God, but separate from God? Is he loving, gracious, merciful? Is he personal? Is he fully man, living and dying and rising again as a perfect sinless human being? If they fall down on any one of these, they are not Christian, no matter what they claim, no matter how good or how moral they may be. All other religions are centred around the teachings or philosophies or example of a person. Only true biblical Christianity is centred on a person, the God-man Jesus Christ. At the end of his gospel, John tells us Jesus did much, much more than John could write about in his book. In fact, he said Jesus did so many things that if every one of them were written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So John thought about which of the miracles and acts and teachings of his Lord that he should document, and the ones he chose, he chose for the clear purpose that you would believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
the first thing John tells us to help us establish our belief and our faith is that Jesus Christ is God. Foundational to our belief as Christians and our eternal life then is the truth of the Trinity. So I've only touched very lightly on the Trinity this morning. John hasn't yet told us about the Godhead of the Holy Spirit, as I mentioned earlier. He will get to that later on. So far, he has only told us there is God and there is the Word and both are fully divine and both are separate, yet in the same way, both are one. So if the doctrine of the Trinity is not true, what are some of the consequences? If Jesus is not God, who or what is he? I think it might have been C.S. Lewis that said something on these lines. Is he just a man? Then how could he claim to forgive sin? Is he a great moral teacher? Any man who claims to be God and yet isn't, is not a moral teacher but is at all, but is a con artist. Yes, he is a great moral teacher, but he is much, much more than that. Is he a lunatic? There's not even a hint of mental unbalance in his life. In fact, he would appear to be the most stable and balanced person that ever walked the face of the earth. Is he a liar? Why would he allow himself to suffer the most shameful and painful death ever invented for something he knew to be a lie? Is he an angel, maybe? Scripture declares him to be far superior to any angel. If Jesus is not God, our Christianity is a farce. If he is not God, his sacrifice is not sufficient to deal with our sin. If he is not God, unfortunately, we are still stuck in our sins and have no hope either for now or for the future. But if Jesus Christ really is the creator God, he is fearfully powerful. He created us out of nothing. He could destroy us in a heartbeat. The same man who wrote this gospel also wrote Revelation at the end of the New Testament. And he speaks of this same person in Revelation 19. And he speaks of him in a terrifying um, context. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has written the name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Where is your heart? in your life, in relationship to Jesus Christ. This word of God who is terrifyingly powerful and infinitely righteous. Have you been half-heartedly playing at being a Christian? Be warned, he can see through all your pretense and hypocrisy. Have you been secretly in rebellion, wallowing in your sin while presenting a holy face to the world? Be warned, nothing is hidden from his sight. 
and he will not be mocked. Have you hardened your heart to him and rejected his claims upon your life? Be warned, he will dispense justice with righteousness to all who have turned their back on him. If one of these describes you, then you need to repent and cry out to him for mercy now while there's still time. There may not be a tomorrow to turn to him. Have you maybe lost your way, left your first love, wandered away from the relationship you had with Jesus Christ in years gone by? He will leave the 99 to seek you out. Listen for his voice. He's calling. He's calling you to return. Are you weighed down by your sin in despair at ever being able to escape from the crushing weight of it? Come to him, all you who are weary and heavy laden. He will give you rest. Have you made such a mess of your life that you can see no way he could possibly accept you? It's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, Jesus said, but sinners. This Jesus Christ, this word of God, is infinitely powerful. He is infinitely righteous, but he is also infinitely merciful. He has grace enough to cover every sin, every mistake, every failure of our lives. Put your life in his hands and he will clean up the mess. The book of Revelation also tells us there are four living creatures around the throne of Jesus Christ in heaven. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, who is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before him saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Truly, worthy are you, Lord, to receive our worship also and more worship than we are able to humanly offer. One day, Lord, we will see you face to face and we'll be able to worship you unrestricted by our limitations. But until that time, we choose to honour you and worship you and all that is within us, our Lord and our God. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.